for this morning is first the kingdom of God. First, the kingdom of God. And if you open your Bibles together, we're going to read responsibly from Matthew 6, verses 24 to the end of the chapter. You will see as you read through that this phrase, first the kingdom of God, <coughs> is found in the 33rd verse as we read along and see it in its context. Matthew 6, 24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold the love to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, and they gather in the barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much rather clothe you, O ye of little faith? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. <clears throat> For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, <clears throat> for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. The 33rd verse then, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. you notice what we're to seek first then. Kingdom of God and his righteousness. The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then comes the statement that all these things will be added to us. Who are the us to those who seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? What are the things that will be added to those who seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? What's the things he has just been speaking of as we have read in our responsive reading? It has to do with the needs of the material life. It has to do with the food and the birds are fed. It has to do with the clothing and the lilies are clothed, are beautifully clothed. So what we find here is an emphasis of putting together two things, a seeking of the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then a specific statement in regard to the needs of life, of clothing, of food, and the things which the Gentiles seek after in their own humanistic view of mammon, which is a humanistic centering of the meeting of the needs of life on the basis of themselves and centered in the security of not just money, so often mammon is translated money, it's more than this, it's more, it has a depth beyond this. It's money, but it's everything that money represents from a humanistic viewpoint. It is that of my own, my own humanistic self-security on the basis of that which I do. Now, you will notice again how much of a realistic book the Bible is. 
the Bible doesn't say what the East might say, and that is these things are of no importance. They're only an illusion. They're a dream. Now, this is not that which is given, because we're told that our Father knows that we have need of these things. So again, we have here the emphasis that there's no real dichotomy between these two things. There is no platonic structure, as so we often say in our discussion. Because after all, God has made us differently than the angels. We're not quite sure how the angels are made, but we know very well how we are made. And that is, among other things, in the way we are made, is that we have a body, and we need food, and we need clothing. And he says here, it doesn't say just a religious thing in the sense of uh, a jump into the dark uh, 20th century religious uh, romanticism. He doesn't say these things are not important. He does not say that you don't need food, you can live without food, and he doesn't say that you don't need clothing and shelter, because you do need clothing and shelter for yourself and for your family. But he says, notice, the Gentiles seek it in one way, you, on the other hand, must understand you live in an entirely different framework. You frame, live in a framework where you have a heavenly father who, has, who knows that you have need of these things. Now, in that setting of having a heavenly father that knows that you have need of these things, have the courage. And you notice it's contrasted in the 30th verse uh, to the O ye of little faith. The Greek word is oleopistos. And you find it constantly throughout Jesus' teaching. Oleopistos people. The people of little faith. And he says, here are the people of the little faith, but here in contrast to this are these who really seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then your loving heavenly father who has made you as you are and who feeds the birds and who clothes the lilies. Well, after you have sought first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then the needs of this life will be added unto you. After we seek God, Christ, and his righteousness. Now, of course, the thing which is always framed in the scriptures and understood is that the kingdom of God can only be entered by accepting Christ as Savior. But we must also remember that in accepting him as Savior, we accept him as Lord. Consequently, if we're speaking here uh, in a group like this, where part of us are Christians and part are not Christians, we must see that these verses always have a double application. And the interesting thing is, is the way Jesus always preached, or almost always preached. In his preaching, you can always see a double application. The application to the man who is not the Christian, and then the application to the man who is the Christian. And Jesus so spoke, so there was a double application. So therefore, to the man of the world who is not a Christian, He's saying, you better really seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, because otherwise these things I'm saying have no part to you whatsoever. They might as well, you might as well not hear them. They have no part to you. On the other hand, he's turning and talking to Christians as well, as we'll see a bit further on. So as we find, we come there, we find that the first call in this text, as Jesus gives it, is to those, uh, those uh, who have as yet no portion in God's kingdom. It is in a call in this sense to accept Christ as Savior. And with the statement is, don't be afraid to accept me as Savior, as though this will guarantee that the necessities of life will overwhelm you. We can see here uh, the, the businessman's mentality, the pragmatist's mentality. And uh, many of us have parents, perhaps, or certainly friends, who live in the businessman's mentality, of which this is all foolishness. It's completely foolish. And one reason not to be a Christian is simply because, well, then he is going to lose his hold on mammon in the description of mammon that I have given it, just not just so many dollars in the bank, but an attitude of mind of buying your own way uh, through uh, your humanistic control of money and all that stands behind money. 
And such a man easily comes and says, no, I don't want to accept Christ as Savior because it is not a practical thing to do. Uh, I must feed my family. I must do this. I must do that. I do not dare accept Christ as my Savior. Christ is giving a reassuring word here as well as a warning. It is a warning because if we don't uh, follow his uh, invitation, in such a case we have no part in the promise. On the other hand, it is a reassurance to the non-Christian that he can come not being afraid because after all, Christianity is not romantic. He can come not being afraid uh, that God doesn't care about the material needs of life. He can come not being afraid that then all will suddenly be as pie in the sky with an interest in the afterlife and the things of this life gradually having no importance. One could even carry it down, though it would be by wide extension, but into wider areas of such a thing as cultural production and creativeness. Don't be afraid, because this is the way for these things, rather than thinking you will lose them if you come and accept my invitation. But the chief emphasis here undoubtedly uh, is upon this whole question of the needs of the material things, the material needs uh, of this life. We do have need of them. To be religious in the sense of saying we don't, it really, we must say, is, is stupid. But God is saying here to the non-saved man, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Your father knows you have need of these things. But keep the order right. Seek first. Seek first uh, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then so, and so, and so. So here we find a call then to accept Christ the Savior uh, with the understanding that then God the Father knows the necessities of the material realm and he will meet those needs. Now this does not mean, of course, and it must be emphasized that this is not a magical formula. And I have a feeling in some Christians that they expect this. In fact, there are times groups of Christians that seem to uh, elevate uh, the test of spirituality to be the way God uh, makes a man rich financially. And I do know Christians who seem to have this mentality. The spiritual man is to, be, uh, is to be picked out from the mob on the basis of who is made rich. Well, that's exactly what it's not saying. It's not saying that the Christian is promised to be the rich man. What the Bible is saying is that the Christian is promised in his daily existential life that God the Father really understands his needs, and the emphasis would be upon needs, and will meet them. There is a verse in the book of Proverbs that toward the end of the book of Proverbs that has been rather a keystone in my own attitude in life at this point where the, we find it says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me neither poverty nor riches. I think this must be the Christian's philosophy of the material needs of life. Not to desire to be so wealthy and the Proverbs go on and tell us why we have to be careful. Because if we're too wealthy, well, if it gets beyond that which we are capable of handling, we will begin to look to our wealth and we will forget God. A very practical statement in the book of Proverbs. On the other hand, if we grow too poor, then the poverty becomes grinding and the book of Proverbs says, and you will be in danger of stealing. And in such a case, you have sinned. So we're told here in the book of Proverbs a very realistic view. I think it's a most, uh, most practical and realistic philosophy of the material things of life. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Be thankful when you're not too rich, and be thankful when you're not too poor. So here you have then what God is really speaking to us and promising us if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, in other words, what we're being called to is a practical existentialism. 
Uh, Christianity, of course, stands against the existential philosophy, but it does not stand against existential living. As a matter of fact, spirituality, in any deep sense, is always related to existential living and not once-for-allness. So you have a once-for-allness of salvation, of justification, but not a once-for-allness of spirituality. And we, have a, we are cast up in the scriptural perspective to live existentially day by day in the presence of God. And so you can think, for example, in the 34th verse of the same chapter we have read, take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow should take thought of the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. One could not have a more exact uh, and beautifully turned existential statement in the proper sense of existential. Because here you are told, live one day at a time. Live on the knife, live on the knife edge of time. Live on the knife edge of time. Of course, you must see, though, that the thing which makes this sensible, in contrast to the way so many young people try to live today in existentially, is the complete framework in which it is set. The reason one dares live existentially is not because he doesn't care at all for tomorrow, or because he doesn't care for other people tomorrow, or he even doesn't care for himself tomorrow, but the reason he can dare to live existentially is because God is there and not chance, and our Heavenly Father knows what we have need of. So here you have a practical existentialism, which is deep spirituality, but only sensible, in contrast to what is obviously nonsensical in much of existential, as much of existential uh, procedure in our own generation, because the structure is different. To live in a universe of chance, and to live saying, I don't care about tomorrow, is really stupid, and it brings a really living death. It really does. It destroys. On the other hand, if I live in a perspective and in a complete total framework in which, in which I have a heavenly Father who knows what I have need of, then its existential living is obviously not only reasonable, but it is what is called for. So the distinction is it's not that I trust chance, but your heavenly Father has knowledge, has knowledge of what you have need for. Of course, the same thing is taught in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. So interestingly enough, in the, uh, in the Lord's Prayer and in this very profound thing we're looking at today, in both cases there is a strong existential note, but an existential note rooted in an entire view of life, and that is that there is a Heavenly Father, and if you have come and accepted Christ as your Savior, and you seek first Christ and his kingdom, if this is the case, then your father has need of what you, uh, know, has knowledge of what you had need of, and therefore you really may have now the courage to live day by day. Sufficient for this day is the evil thereof. Speaking therefore, remembering first of all to the unsaved, this of course to the unsaved man is foolish. Judged in the, judged in the, uh, the structure, the total structure of the unsaved man's world, and especially the 20th century world with no God there at all, uh, we must understand very, very much that this is a stupid way to live. So you have, uh, you have the young person who is trying to live existentially in a framework in which it doesn't make any sense. You have his father saying this is a stupid situation because you really have to do it yourself. You better save up for a rainy day. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but I have. Uh, you better save up for a rainy day. That's, you better fill your life. Your life better be thinking. Your life better be centered in the thought of what do I do on retirement day? 
Tuesday. Now here you have then three possibilities. The father, who in his own setting is making completely good sense, but, uh, but it's in his own setting. The son, who in his own setting says, I will live existentially, and really in the common setting between himself and his father, what he is saying is making no sense. And the Christian who lives because there is a heavenly father and he is seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness, now in this setting and this setting, he is saying the same thing as the existentialist in one way, but now it makes perfectly good sense. So the father makes sense in his setting, the Christian makes sense in his setting. But you must understand, the reason the Christian says this is not because, uh, not because of just an I don't care but because in the setting of the reality that there is a loving Heavenly Father, this, this is a sensible, a sensible statement. To the unsaved man, therefore, it is foolish. Uh, preached 30-some years ago when I first would have pre preached some sermon like this, you could just end there and say, this is stupid to the unsaved man to say, live day by day. But we didn't even use the word existential in those days. Uh, today, you have to add the second clause. It is foolishness to the Father, but the young people are living this way, but in their own framework, it really doesn't make sense. So you have these two, these two elements. In the last 30 years, you have to add the, last, the second sentence as well as the first. To the unsaved man who is, who are the unsaved man who is thinking in the hard-headed uh, framework of uh, the unsavedness of a purely chance universe, in such a situation, of course, religion is always a luxury. It is something to be indulged in after the material needs, needs are met. It's all right to be religious, but not too religious. It is all right to go to church, that's fine, but nevertheless, business comes first. And after, in this kind of a mentality, it, you must see that what I'm saying is, is, I'm talking about now, not a lack of religiousness as such, but a lack of sensibleness of, uh, in this man's mind in trying to live this way. He says, here is a luxury. You go on and you, you work it out for yourself. Mammon is something to lay up in the bank. Mammon is something to depend upon, whether it's in your social security, your AVS uh, in Switzerland, or, or whether it's in another form. I will lay it up. I will do this. This is the only sensible thing. And then on top of this, when everything is achieved, wherein the sensibleness is, is fulfilled, and such a point then, then you can add the luxury of going to church and the luxury of some religion. But you will notice that Christ completely reverses this order. It's a complete reversal. The thing which the world would say, and remember now, I'm speaking to the man living in the consistency of a chance universe, and I'm not talking about the existentialist who goes off and just jumps off a cliff, as it were. But the person living in this other way who is speaking and saying, uh, the thing to do is to really take care of yourself, boy. And then if you take care of yourself, well, if you want to go to church on Sunday, that's not. But Jesus reverses the entire mentality. And the reason it is sensible to reverse the entire mentality is because there really is a heavenly father who, will, who knows you have need of these practical things of life. Christ reverses the whole thing and says, no, instead of it being that you should seek your own way and then add religion, as it were, as a bit of frosting on a cake, uh, which is completely in contrast to the, to the character of the cake and the constituency of the cake, the icing just covers up something or is on top of something entirely in contrast to itself, Jesus reverses this with totality and he says the only true security is seeking and putting the things of God first. That's the only true security.
There is no other truth secured. So the interesting thing is here, you must see that Jesus is emphasizing a completely opposite, a completely opposite, uh, a completely opposite view of life. That if you want true security, if you want true security in anything that makes any kind of sense, in the light of what the universe really is, then the thing to do is to put the things of God first and not the reverse. Now then, we must realize for each of us that the material sphere for each of us is only transient. Every time we come to a death, this is one of the graces of death. The graces of death in a fallen world is that it reminds us that the material things of this life for every one of us are completely transient. And Jesus emphasizes this very, very strongly. And I'm going to ask John if you'll read for us Luke 12, verses 13 through 20. And in this place, Jesus stresses very, very strongly uh, the fact of the transitness uh, of uh, the things of this life. Luke 12, 13 through 20. You can see here Jesus' tremendous reversal uh, of a uh, reversal of the common sense attitude of uh, of man, the complete reversal, and this strong strong word, thou fool, thou fool. In other words, in the situation of what really exists, this rich man is the supreme fool, just the supreme fool. Of course, the Bible stresses the transcendence of life in many other places. We can think of such, such expressions as that man is like the grass that soon passes away and withers. And this is true. And it is a good thing to live within the understanding of the transcendence of life. This is a good thing. It's something we, we naturally push off. And yet at the same time, and we don't want to get in the place of the medieval vanitas, where we're always surrounded by the skull. That isn't what we want to do. The medieval sense of, of going and burying people in the, uh, in the house, in the monastery, so you go every Sunday and look at the bones to be reminded that you're going to die. This is not the way to live. We are to affirm life. But on the other hand, the opposite is also to be eschewed, and that is we are not to forget that life really is transient. Life really is transient. It simply is, simply, the simple fact is it does not go on forever for anybody. In the book of James, the fourth chapter, verses 13 and 14, we find this admonition in the same direction. James 4, 13 and 14. Go to now, ye that say today or tomorrow, we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain, whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth 
for a little time and then vanisheth away. There is a, so, as so often in the Bible, a very beautiful literary structure here. So you have the man who says, I will go and I will spend a year to buy and sell and get gain. And the scripture says, but how do you know what happens tomorrow? So it would be silly if you said, I'm going to really go for the year. And then I know it will be like this at the end of the year. That will be silly. But how much more silly when you've got to acknowledge that while you're planning on a year, in reality, you don't know what's going to be tomorrow. And then the strong emphasis again, uh, like the grass of the field that weathers, uh, withereth away. But in this case, the figure of speech bring, bringing it to us strongly, you're like a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. It's even shorter than the grass. The grass lasts some days, even in the days late winter, uh, late autumn of frost. Uh, but the vapor, the vapor that arises in the morning from the, uh, from the lake is only there uh, a little while. It doesn't last the day. And as soon as the sun arises, the vapor is gone. So the Bible says, take a good look at the perspective of history. The history in this life, but take a good look at the perspective of your life, wherein you are born for a foreverness. And being born for a foreverness, remember that in the, struck, in the structure of not only history is history, but your personal history of foreverness. This life in its transitness is just like a vapor that stands upon the lake in the morning, but with the first rays of the sun, it is gone and it has only become a memory, even in the light of your own personal history of foreverness. Now let us, as we have spoken to the non-Christian, let's turn, however, to the Christian because certainly this message is also very much for the Christian as well as the non-Christian. To the Christian, to the non-Christian, it is said, have a real perspective of life and understand all that's involved and don't be silly, don't turn away. And the word is silly now rather than just wicked. It is, be, don't be wicked, but it is also, don't be silly, don't turn away from the real security in the light of the transcendence of life. But when we turn to the Christian, uh, the same thing may be said. And as a matter of fact, I would say that we could say the primary thrust here is to those who are Christians rather even than to the non-Christian, although that is involved as well. So we can see here then that as we look at this text, consider it and this teaching of the transitness of life, that this is something to be kept in mind not only for the non-Christian, but for the believer in the realm of service. Now, when I use the word service in this message, I'm not talking about a confined sense of service. I'm not talking about a Christian activism, nor necessarily being called in the ministry or as a missionary. But there is no Christian, no matter what his calling, that is not called to Christian service. Because a call to Christ as Savior is a call to Christ as Lord. And consequently, service. Now, please don't shut it up into some set thing out of your past. Of, an, of a certain form of activism. I'm talking about something much more, much more, uh, less emaciated than that. And yet, nevertheless, the Bible is saying here also is in the light to us as Christians, in the light of the transitness of life, uh, don't forget, don't forget that the same thing applies to you in the realm of service. We must also understand that the Christian's life here in this world does not go on forever. The believer's life on this wor world is transient. One cannot evaluate how long your life is going to be simply because of your present chronological age. This is not a possible way to, to make a calculation. All one has to do is to look over the death notices in a newspaper and one is rapidly brought up short that naturally while the averages weigh on the older side uh, of death, yet nevertheless these are only averages. 
They're only averages. No matter how old the person is, including the child, there is no guarantee of the amount of time there is left. And that's as true to the Christian as to the non-Christian. So the believer's life here on earth after he's a Christian is also completely transient. And at best, it will only be for a, a few years. Even at best. Even at best. Uh, 50, 60, 70, maybe 80 years. And in one way, this seems long. In another way, in another way, as you look at it, you realize that in the scope of history and in the possibilities even of trying to get accomplished everything you want to get accomplished, it's all too short. So at best, we must understand that we only have a few years. And then we will stand, after we are the Christian, we will, if we are the Christian, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And I do believe that we don't stress this enough. Perhaps it has been overstressed in certain evangelical circles, but let us not let the pendulum swing and forget that this too is in the Word of God. And I'm going to ask Udo to read to us 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 through 15. So the biblical emphasis here is the fact that you have some, some years after you're, serve, if you're uh, a Christian for service, to follow the Lordship of Christ. And then you face, then you face the thing that is given here in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 through 15. For other foundations that no man lays, and that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abides, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. You'll notice here how carefully the Holy Spirit leads Paul to balance this, uh, that the only rock is Christ. So there's no way to be saved except by, uh, by being on the rock of Christ. Uh, but, he says, and actually, though in the King James it's and, it's in the Greek it's the, which is, can be translated but, and in this setting I'm sure it should be but. And it would run like this, therefore. Yes, the only way to be saved is Christ, but... Remember this, that after you're a Christian, Christ is your Lord. And as Christ is your Lord, one day you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And as you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, there you will, you will be, uh, the matter will be considered of how you have built upon the rock. I don't know if it's helpful to you, but it is helpful to me to visualize it so. And that is, here is a great rock in the middle of a prairie, surrounded by prairie grass, and we clamber up on the rock and we're safe. But clambering up on the rock, we begin to build, and we build different kind of constructions. And then one day, there comes a prairie fire, and it sweeps down to that awesomeness and the roar of the, west, of the prairie fire in the western part of the United States, and it comes, and it leaps the rock. It leaps the rock. And as it leaps the rock, those things that have been built of that which is combustible, burns. Those things which are built of that which is not combustible, stain. Now you will notice that the balance is maintained very carefully because Paul does not allow this to be used uh, as an emphasis upon the fact that you can be lost again because his statement is, you will be saved, yet so is by fire. In other words, it's perfectly possible to be a Christian, be saved, and yet after our salvation, so build that in reality most of our stuff is, is really worthless. It's really worthless. 
So the emphasis then is this, yes, once you're saved, you're always saved, but Christ, but the Christian's work will be judged as they file. And those who have built well uh, on the stone, which is Christ, shall have a reward. And those who have built worthless things shall see their work swept away. In other places, you have the emphasis upon the Christian receiving crowns. These things are not explained as to exactly how they add up, exactly what they will mean in heaven in practical terms. And I think it's foolish to try to speculate too closely as to the detail. But having said this, nevertheless, the teaching is quite clear. And that is, you have your choice after, and so do I, very much so, after I am a Christian, to seek first the kingdom of heaven and God's righteousness, or not to do so. To the extent in which I do, and Christ is really my Lord, I am left with what the Bible speaks of as rewards or crowns. To the extent in which, as a Christian, I do not seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, I am left with ashes. It's as simple as this. We must understand that this fits very strongly into the biblical emphasis again. It is not an isolated teaching. It is that we live in a moral universe in contrast to an all-moral universe. The Bible stresses, indeed, there is salvation and there is lostness. But the Bible stresses something beyond merely the salvation and the lostness, or along with it, I suppose, would be a better way to say it, and that is the total justice of God. There will be a complete balancing of books across the whole universe which will be totally just. A complete balancing of the books. For the man who is lost, there are a few stripes and the many stripes. For the Christian, we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The chasm is real, the lostness and the non-lostness. But this does not mean that we should underestimate on either side of the chasm the factor that God is a moral God, is a, is a, uh, a, a moral God, he is a just God, and all the books will be bound. Every book will be bound. When the thing is done, nothing will be out of place. All will be bound. It is a moral universe in contrast to uh, an all-moral universe of the 20th century mentality. So we find, therefore, that when Christ commands all men to seek first the kingdom of heaven, he is speaking to both the unbeliever uh, and to the saved man. And that both the unbeliever and the saved man must, in the light of the teaching of Jesus, stop and check up on his own, his own attitudes. Because what's involved here are attitudes. Are attitudes. Are attitudes toward the self-security of the mammon, in the way I've described mammon, or is it to realizing there is a heavenly father and he knows my needs? So both the unsaved man and the saved man are brought face to face by Jesus to a very practical consideration. The question, the answering as we're here together, the question of whether or not, uh, whether is one of these uh, or whether it is the other. And it is one or the other. And of course, we must say with some sadness, those of us who are Christian, it is often very mixed. It's never perfect with any of us. But we are challenged to consider here which way are we looking at the thing? Which way? Through which pair of spectacles? How are we looking at the entire picture? And do we really know there is a Heavenly Father who knows we have need of these things? Well then, it makes sense to live existentially and to understand that we have a Heavenly Father who knows we have need of these things. Which are we putting first? The transcendent, the transcendent material things uh, in, the, in the value judgments of the world, or are we putting first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Now the interesting thing is the Bible is filled with men who made the right choice, and we see the results. As a matter of fact, every hero of the faith 
is the man who made the right choice. Almost every hero of the faith made the choice uh, uh, in, a very, in a specific and definite way. I would point out Abraham is the clearest example. So he was commanded by God to do what? Well, to put it in, to bring it down to what we now know of history, he was commanded by God to leave the Sumerian culture at its great height. That's what he was commanded to do. This was wealth. It was ease. It was security. It was inside plumbing, incidentally. It was whitewashed houses. And he was called, in contrast to this, to go out into a barren place. He was called to leave the, the Sumerian culture at, at its, almost its crest. These great, this great Sumerian culture that produced more than any other culture ever produced up until our own 1900 given birth to almost every basic thing that man built on in culture, the wheel, all kinds of things. And here it was, standing there before him, and he had it at his disposition. It really must, it really must uh, have been a very affluent life. And suddenly God calls him to go forth uh, into a very backward land. And he had, a, he had to face the choice. And his face, the choice was simply this, mammon, in the way I've described mammon, or the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It meant to leave friends, comfort, prestige. In short, the easy life to obey meant hardship uh, as far as any human eye could see. But, uh, but Abraham is, stands here as a, this tremendous example. And the Bible uses him as an example in the book of Hebrews to this end that he went forth and he left his city. He went out to seek a different kind of a city. And as he did so, he sought first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. And as he went on, the intriguing thing is uh, that God really did give him what he needed. And as you trace the history uh, of, uh, of Abraham in his own lifetime, one is impressed, deeply impressed, that the man who walked away with nothing in his hand, or very little in his hand, by the end of his life had had his needs overwhelmingly met. His needs had been overwhelmingly met. There were tears, there were sorrows, but his needs were overwhelmingly met, even in cattle and in flocks. Beyond this, he had his posterity, a posterity that the Bible promised and has been true to be so, both in, the material, both in the natural side of the Jews and the spiritual side of those of us, of those, uh, of us who are Christians here today, we feeling are part of that promise of being the spiritual seed of Abraham, and that they have become as the sands of the sea and the stars of the heaven. And more abundantly and above this is the fact that God promised him that of his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And as we gather here from so many parts of the world with different colors of skin and coming from different language backgrounds and scattered over the world, but united as one in Christ, as many of us have found Christ in this place, we are the fulfillment, we are the fulfillment of this promise and the, on the deep level of the fact that through Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed. We can simply put it like this, that he was faced with a Sumerian culture, and let us not take this lightly, because as I say, it was an extremely high culture, in its own way as high as ours, and in some ways perhaps more sensible. And in, here we find that he was faced with this, and in contrast, because he was willing to put first the kingdom of heaven and its righteousness, we find that Isaiah, using, speaking for God, says, God speaking of Abraham says, Abraham, my friend. And there's the contrast. Abraham, my friend. This is God's attitude toward Abraham. But it rested upon the Sumerian culture, or putting first the kingdom of heaven and God's righteousness. 
and Abraham has turned his back upon friends. He turned his back upon friends, and there was no telegraph system in those days to keep in touch with your family. When you left, you left. When you left, you left. It took years to find out any news. But he found a friend, and his friend was not just somebody who was going to be his friend in heaven, but his friend was somebody who was his friend day by day and in which God could look back, and you can hear surely a note of affection as God speaks of Abraham through the prophet Isaiah and calls Abraham, Abraham, my friend. These are the men that are counted the heroes of the faith, the heroes of faith, and so he is one. He left everything to seek first, the kingdom of God. Another illustration surely would be Moses. And in the book of Hebrews, speaking of the heroes of the faith, we find that Moses is speaking of, spoken of in this way, and surely you can feel without much explanation uh, how this fits in to seeking first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and these things will be added unto you. We find in the book of Hebrews, it reads like this, uh, that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he had rec respect unto the recompense of the reward. Isn't that a remarkable thing? Let me read it again. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he had, he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Now, this is not a vain sentence because he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter and in Egypt, the line could be passed down through the feminine side. And if she is the, if she is the princess, some of us think she might be Hatshepsut, and I don't know if she is, big discussion. But if she is this, Hatshepsut was a very important, uh, very important personage and it's entirely possible that he could have been Pharaoh of Egypt. Now, I don't know if this is true or not, but anyway, the setting is like this. What he was turning his back on was not a hovel, was not a fellow down there, as, uh, as the uh, peasant has been called in Egypt. He is not the fellow living in the hovel, but he is the Jew living in the palace with a tremendous education at his disposal. This was the learning of all the world, and all this was before him. Everything was before him, and as I say, theoretically, perhaps, 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 even the line. But he, just, he turned aside, he turned aside from these riches in order to suffer affliction with the people of God. He would rather do this than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Here is the transitness of life esteeming the reproach of Christ, and it's intriguing, the book of Hebrews uses the word Christ here, showing again that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is active back in the time uh, of the Jewish epoch, uh, Jewish uh, history, era. The reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Not a small thing, but like, like in a different way, exactly parallel to Abraham's leaving the Sumerian culture. And why? for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. It wasn't ridiculous. I mean, this is what you must see. Uh, as we were discussing in our discussion last night, the, the, a proper egoism and a non-proper egoism. There is a proper egoism. And he had, he had respect unto the recompense of the reward because he knew God had said something and there was a reward, a reward that was not to be despised, a reward that was not to be grasped egoistically, 
humanistically, but nevertheless, something that could be acted on as a promise. This is exactly, of course, what Jesus makes to all of us when he speaks of seeking first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So we find that a man like Moses indeed has found eternal life. He has found eternal life, as Abraham found eternal life. But it is not only that Moses found eternal life, but indeed one can look at Moses and thinking of the fact of how few people there are in the world today that could name the Pharaoh that lived at the time of Moses, and yet the whole world, there's nobody, Christian and non-Christian, who has any degree of education, even behind there's nobody, Christian and non-Christian, who has any degree of education, even behind the communist curtains, it does not matter, in the pagan lands, who knows anything about culture and life and history, to whom the name Moses does not stand out as a crucial name. Here is something very profound to think about. Where would he have had most? Well, surely the hard-headed practical people would have said, Moses, you're a fool. Of course you will have more by living in the palace. He believed God, and really and truly, as far as to everything, even that the hard-headed practical man would have been pointing to, the practical man would have been wrong. With the suffering, with the sufferings and the battle, even in the things which the practical man would have used as a gauge, Moses did not suffer, he had more. We could think of the, of the finally, of, of the New Testament of Paul. We always we think of Paul, but we forget often the setting of Paul. Paul was a very, very important young Jew. And he was a student of Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was the best known, the best known rabbinical teacher of that period. Gamaliel, we can be sure, only accepted the best men, the really bright young men, the men who had the greatest promise. And to be a student of Gamaliel guaranteed, guaranteed uh, preference. More than that, we can see that he was well on the way of the use of that preference when he had such an important task as going to Damascus to arrest the Christians. He was well on his way professionally. But when he turned, he, but when he came face to face with Jesus Christ, he turned his back on all that which his own world structure offered him and this meant fame, power, and following to be a, a, an important Jew in that day meant wealth as well as power and prestige. He turned his back on it to follow Christ, not just for salvation, but into service, service being this wider concept of service of which I've spoken, and suddenly saw what Christ said to be true, and he acted upon it, and his whole life was committed to the fact that if you seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, not just in becoming a Christian, but in service, that God knows your needs, and you need not be afraid. And God met his needs. God sometimes gave him jobs to make tents, and God sometimes sent him gifts, and God met his needs in both ways. And uh, the man who could have been an important Jew in the, in the Jewish community, we find him in a place in the eyes of the world, surely, that was much less. But in reality, it was much more, but not only much more, but God kept his promise. God kept his promise. He understood something. He understood that, indeed, just what Jesus says, that the kingdom of God is a pearl of great price. It's a pearl of great price. You better search for it. If you're unsaved, you better search for it. For those of us who are Christians, we better, we better so couch our lives in practice and our thought forms behind our world, uh, our, our outward acts, to understand that the kingdom of God is really a pearl of great price. 
It's more important than anything else in all the world. It's a treasure hid in the field. And Jesus says if a man knows his treasure in the field, he'll sell everything he has to buy that field, and he'll dig and dig and dig and to buy it to find the treasure. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like the treasure hid in the field. It's there. It's really worthwhile going through this existential situation of living in the light of the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It isn't just, it isn't just heaven, though it is heaven, but in this life also it is a pearl of great price. It is a treasure it is a treasure hid in the field. The things of life, we had a, using some of the uh, old hymns that we used to sing back in the evangelical churches in America. There was one we used to sing, the things of life become strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You don't sing it here, but it was one of, these, one of the things that had become almost dead because of repetition. And yet, nevertheless, you understand that whoever wrote that hymn understood the correct Christian view. And that is, it's the things of this life and its transcendence does not, do not become unimportant. And God does not say you don't have need of things in this life and your children have need of things in this life. But nevertheless, in contrast to the other things, the things which are eternal, in contrast to these, this becomes dim. I would just like to say in parenthesis that, of course, this was one of the great emphasis of C.S. Lewis, that in reality, that's the way we should look at things. This, this should be, this should be uh, our, uh, our perspective. The things of this life become strangely dim. Uh, in, but it doesn't say they're not important. God knows. God knows that we have need of these things. And so we find Paul giving his life, seeking to reveal Christ, as has been quoted uh, from another source, in every look and action, in every thought, and every word because he understood that this is really, in the perspective of what is, this is not only right, but the thing that really makes sense. Really makes sense. These are the heroes of the faith. And as you look through the Bible, the heroes of the faith are the men who took God seriously. At just such a point, Abraham leaving the Sumerians, and yet the culture of Sumerians, and yet becoming the friend of God. They gave up things. There is no hero of the faith, whether in the Bible or in subsequent church history, that has not given up something. And just put this down in your book and never forget. There is no hero of the faith, either in the Bible or in subsequent church history, no one that's a hero of the faith that hasn't given up something in order to put first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. There's no such thing as being a hero of the faith without giving up something, without giving up something in the process. The interesting thing is with Abraham, Moses, and with Paul, and we can think of others, that they were willing to give up much more than eventually God asked them to give up. And this is something again to remember. They were willing to give up something, they were willing to give up more than he asked them to give up. In each case, in each case, they did not give up eventually, fulfilling God's promise, manifold more in the present life. They did not give up as much as they indicated a willingness to give up, not without tears and not without some kicking of feet at times because they were human too but nevertheless it was their viewpoint and it was the perspective uh, back in the 30s there was a very shocking thing that arose people didn't understand radioactivity at that time and there was a factory in the United States that was making luminous watch di dials with radioactive material and uh, they painted the numbers these girls had the job of painting the numbers on the uh, dial of watches and clocks uh, in radioactive material so they would glow in the dark. 
And these girls, because nobody understood radioactivity, these girls tipped the brushes with their tongue. And suddenly it realized, that everybody suddenly realized something, that none of these girls had more than 13 or 14 months to live. They were all young. There were about 80 of them. So here were these 80 who suddenly were confronted with the fact of a, uh, of a definite, a defined lifespan. And one of the tremendously interesting things of the 30 was the pursuit of seeing how these girls spent their lives in the light of the fact that they knew that they had a defined lifespan. Now I want to say to you as Christians, that should be the Christian's attitude. The Christian has a defined lifespan. He knows it won't be long. At his best, it won't be long. And the Christian calling, as a matter of fact, is quite in this direction. The Christian's calling is toward the second coming of Christ, not death. The Christian mentality is always to be turned toward the fact that perhaps Jesus will come back, perhaps Jesus will come back in, uh, in my lifetime. Well, if I was this girl, one of these girls, who was told that I had a defined lifespan and that was the end of it, the radioactivity was killing me in my bones, uh, what would I do? How would it change? How would it change my life habits? And I'm sure it changed every one of their habits. I'm sure the things which were important became unimportant and other things rapidly became very important. Well, that's exactly the way the Christian ought to be. The Christian is a man who is living in the light of the return of Christ in the realization that this may be the generation in which Jesus comes back that this may be the time, this may be the year, when I will not die, perhaps now, if I, this is the year, but perhaps this year I will be changed in a twinkling of an eye at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should serve and live existentially at every moment, understanding, understanding that maybe this year will be the year when we will be face to face with Jesus Christ. Isn't it true that that changes your perspective? Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and then God knows what you have need of. But don't you understand? You don't know. In the transcendence of life, surely, almost certainly, three years from now, some of us will be dead if Christ hasn't come back. But also, even without the matter of death, the factor of death, in the factor that we as Christians should be living on tiptoe waiting for the second coming of Christ, our perspective should be changed. We should live and serve each moment understanding that this may be the year when I am face to face with Christ and all that we have read in the light of the, all we have read in the light of the, uh, of the believer's judgment. And this is, the, this is the way we should live. And in such a setting, we can now begin to hear the, Jesus of, uh, the words of Jesus coming almost as it were over a bullhorn. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and God knows what you have need of and he will care for these things. And this is to be the setting. So two things stand out in this. First of all, the transit, the, and as we look at these, this section, the transitness of life, life passes, the transitness of the material, and the second thing, that we should truly seek the kingdom of God in salvation, but equally after I'm a Christian in, in service uh, for, the, uh, for this life, and I have the promise, this kind of existential living makes sense because you have a loving Heavenly Father who made you with these needs. He, he knows the needs. Remember the birds. Remember the lowest of the field. Don't be afraid. Now, in contrast to this, though, we find that Jesus, as I close, Jesus had some very, very, very strong words to say about Christians who didn't live this way. And we read in Luke 18, 29 and 30, And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, 
There is no man that hath left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time in the world to come, life everlasting. So he says, uh, he speaks here of uh, what the mentality should be. It is hard and it is easy. It is hard because uh, the whole world thinks the other way. We're surrounded by these things. We do see our needs. Uh, and as such, there are many poles so that it is difficult. It is difficult uh, to operate upon the promise. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. There's many hard things. But don't you understand to the extent in which we're really viewing it from a Christian perspective, it is easy because we have the promise of God that he will care for us. So it's both things. It's hard and it's easy. And Christ does strongly condemn his followers, and I mean his, his disciples now, those who are Christians, who put the things of this life above loyalty to him. So we could read in Matthew 10, 37 and 38, he that loveth father, and let me read it slowly, because it's a practical thing with many of us who sit in this room. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and falleth after me is not worthy of me. And this is not meant to be poetry. It's meant to be a, a specific a specific statement meaning exactly what it says. We may be the Christian, and yet if we do not live uh, on the positive side of seeking first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness with the knowledge that he will meet our needs, and on the negative side, if we don't realize that this is some, there's some hardness in this and we're willing to pay the price of the hardness as Abraham left his friends in Ur of the Chaldees, that we may be his, he may be Christians all right. That's, that's, that's so. But nevertheless, he looks upon us and he says, well, you're my disciple, but you're not worthy of me if this is the way you live. So Christ turns to every safe person and says, I've left and suffered everything for you. And then we have the words of another old evangelical hymn, what have you done for me? And this can become a cheap kind of sentiment and a rather unbeautiful one. But seen in the right perspective, it is the right one. And that is, I left my home in heaven, etc., etc., etc. The evangelical hymn goes on. What have you left for me? It's a good question. For every one of us in this room who claim to be the children of God, what have we left for him? What have we really left for him? What have we? Some of us have left some things. Well, that's good. But all of us have to say, what have I left for him? Will we be willing to put away anything? Willing to put away anything, regardless of what it is, even the things that are most precious, in order to stand, after I'm a Christian, for a clear-cut service. Now, remember, my definition of service is, is not an activism. It's not just something, it's not just an, an activistic thing, nor is it a, a special vocation like the ministry. But is it true that I am willing to put aside anything, no matter how precious, for my service for him in this larger uh, and full sense? Remember Kipling. Kipling really understood something. Kipling was a prophet, incidentally, as well as speaking from a Christian viewpoint, though he did. we might reject many of his attitudes. But nevertheless, in the recessional, you remember his words. The tumult and the shouting dies. The captains and the kings depart. And in another stanza, far called, our navies melt away. On dune and headland sinks the fire. Lo, all our pomp of yesterday is one with Nineveh and Tyre. When, when, when uh, he wrote this, 
Kipling wrote this, it must have just seemed a sort of a romantic statement. Today it's a romantic statement. We can understand so. And so we must live. This is to be the Christian's attitude. All the material factors of this life, uh, if isolated and taken to themselves and made to be mammon to us, in the humanistic, laying a hold of them in the world's perspective toward them, all the material factors of this life are as the cities which have long since perished in comparison to the eternal verities of salvation in Christ and service once we are saved. The man who puts houses, lands, parents, friends, children, power, and pomp and wealth above salvation and service is in the terms of God a foolish fool. A foolish fool. He's not just wicked, but he's a foolish fool. And yet as we come here, we can certainly say the contrast, and that is, thank God, his promises are true. That to those of us who in some poor way seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, uh, there is uh, God promises that he knows our need. He knows our need. And there will be not only real treasures in heaven, and this is not to be thought of as a figure of speech. There is a transference from the temporalness of this life and the, uh, the temporariness of this life uh, to the banks of heaven. This is not to be thought of as a figure of speech. It has real meaning in a way perhaps we couldn't draw and make and a piece, lay out on a piece of paper, but this is to be our attitude. We're not to be like the foolish, the foolish stewards, uh, or rather uh, that uh, moved in the wrong direction. We're to be like the steward who understood the thing to do is lay up treasures in the place where it counts. And if you come to this place, therefore, we see that it, he isn't only talking about treasures in heaven, but this little phrase that runs through, and that is, hasn't your father made you? Hasn't your father made you? Well, in such a case, it's not only then, it's the now. Manifold more in the present life. I'll just finish with one more line of an old evangelical hymn we used to sing in our evangelical churches in America over and over again, and that is uh, speaking about... Uh, I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. Some of you, this rings a note out of your past. And you can, uh, the memory, uh, the melody will be buzzing in your head. Uh, and uh, then we go on and we sing about crossing the sea. But you know what we really need are Christians who believe Christ, of seeking first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness up to the level of being willing just to go across the street. Shall we pray together? Our Heavenly Father, this is not an easy sermon for any of us, for we are weak, but we thank thee that these things are not just words. It's not just a semantic mysticism, a piece of poetry that makes us feel nice for a moment, and then suddenly, oh God, it all slips through our fingers at the first blowing of, of the gale. But that all this is right, and not only right, but makes good sense for the simple reason that you really are there and that you made it and you have you know what we have need of that you know our spiritual needs but you also know our physical needs you understand these things the ground us ground us we pray in the name of the lord jesus to keep the correct perspective for those who are still wrestling as to whether to become a christian oh god may they understand may they understand that it's not just a system against another system but it's a reality. And to understand that in the light of the framework of what really is for this life and the life to come, that to serve mammon when we do not even, are not even, to say with any certainty that we're going to do business for another year, 
but rather that our life is like the mist upon the pond in the morning is really just foolish. But to build barns and store them up with grain, when in reality, this night we will, we will be gone and we will leave the grain for somebody else and maybe even someone else we do not like to eat and to spend and to squander is really foolish and totally foolish. But for those of us who are Christians, our Heavenly Father, may we indeed understand that these words speak to us as well. And you call upon us for a deep and a profound loyalty, but it's not a heartless loyalty. It's a loyalty, O God, in which there is a call to true existential living. Give us this day our daily bread. O help us, our Father, we ask, to, in truth, day by day, seek first Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, and his righteousness. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.